You're listening to the Mastering College to Career podcast, the show for first-generation and minority college students. Each episode will feature topics such as highlights and progress from students who have completed the MC2C mentoring program, networking opportunities, and unique insights and strategies from industry thought leaders. So, if you're looking for your guide to success, you're in the right place. Now, without further ado, let's get into the show. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome back to this episode of the Mastering College to Career Podcast. Today, we will be talking about international students and H-1B visas. And to do that, we have the perfect guy for this topic. We have Robert Bouchard, and he is the founder of the H-1B guy, and he's just a master in this space. And so super excited to have you here. Robert, how are you doing? How's your week going? Hey, Daniel, what's up, man? Thanks for having me on. Week is going great. Uh, things are starting to heat up here in the spring and uh, in, in Northwest Atlanta. Nice, nice. I love Atlanta. I think it's an amazing city. That's probably one of the few cities that I would leave Orlando for. But uh, Robert, let's get let's get to it. I mean, how did this whole H-1B guys got started? That's a great question. And, you know, I spent 16 years in IT agency staffing, uh, filling, you know, a wide range of, of technology-based roles, uh, contingency-based, perm-based staffing. And over time, I had experienced this knack for uh, recruiting developers uh, and developing these third-party relationships with these subcontracting firms that have access to, to that type of talent. And so through all of that, I became familiar with the H-1B visa and honestly, a lot of the other types of work authorizations that are out there for individuals that um, immigrate to the U.S. And through all of that, became an expert in work authorization process um, and compliance, as, as well as building and establishing global recruitment strategies, specifically for these high-skilled technology-based positions that predominantly find themselves as H-1B visas. Uh, so, you know, fast forward to uh, middle of March of last year, and, and I found myself working for a staffing firm that was heavily impacted by, by the pandemic. And uh, at the end of May, um, you know, had, uh, had lost my job really due to COVID and took a few weeks off and, and decided that, um, you know, it was time for me to do something else. And the concept of the H-1B guy was, was born because I as for my peers and colleagues, I was always that guy. Hey, go ask Robert. He's the H-1B guy. He can answer that question uh, because the H-1B, H-1B visa as a whole, very complicated and, and complex subject. And then when you add recruiting to it, it makes it even more difficult. So Daniel, I, I took some time and I looked out there and I went to the first two places that everyone goes to, to, to look up information, right? Google and YouTube. And I realized all that was out there are immigration attorneys and immigrants. There wasn't really someone with a recruiting or employer background that was talking about this, uh, this subject, this employment-based visa benefits, because it's much bigger than just the H-1B, but the H-1B guy was born from that concept. And so the middle of June, I registered the domain and on June 29th, I put myself out there on YouTube and launched the website to the world. 
and got my first client day one on LinkedIn. And I realized I was onto something because I can help employers solve problems. And especially in situations where they may not have the human capital or the knowledge to do it. And so very quickly, the website and the social media presence started to grow. And there was a bill that was in the Senate at that time called Senate Bill S-386. People started reaching out to me, asking me about my political aspirations uh, in, in terms of, hey, what do you think about this? And, and I've always had interest in politics as a whole. And when I started looking at the Fairness for High-Skilled Immigrants uh, Act, the bill that was out there, I, I agreed with a lot of the language in it. I started talking about why it's good for the future of our country. And then when you add that to now President Biden receiving the Democratic um, nomination, I did a lot of content around what things would look like if he were to win. And then guess what? In November, he won. And all of a sudden, my channel and my website and my views from there have just grown tremendously um, to the point that over the last few months, I, I've seen thousands of view growth on both my platforms. That, that's amazing. And I think it is such a complex subject that um, people just need guidance and loss. I've had immigration lawyers, but the immigration, the lawyers are great at knowing like the laws and what what's legal and not legal, but they don't understand the employment side of it, right? They're not that recruiters, they're not the HR professionals. And so having someone like you that can just dismissify or like simplify this complex subject and help individuals and help companies navigate it, because um, I think a lot of companies, you know, I mean, I don't know from your perspective, like what do you, out of all the companies, what percent of companies actually sponsor are willing to go out there and sponsor? Yeah, I'd say that number is probably about 33%. I'd say one in three are willing to consider some form of sponsorship. And the ones that don't are one, they, they look at the cost or the commitment to it. Yeah. And it scares them. And, and you hit on something about immigration attorneys having a good immigration attorney, if I'm an employer, or if I'm an immigrant here in the US, you know, looking to maintain a status, I've got to make sure that I've got a good immigration attorney, they are a critical part of the process. But from my perspective, and, and kind of what your point is, is sometimes there are going to be situations for employers where they have an opening, and it's going to go unfilled unless they are willing to consider some form of sponsorship. So the question becomes, what's the what's the break even? How long is that position going to remain open versus the, the, the legal fees and the filing fees and the cost of hiring or sponsoring an employee on a on a work visa, right, an employment based visa? Um, is, is that cost justified? And at the end of the day, I think it is, because when you look at IT unemployment, less than 4%. Um, February statistics from 2021, Daniel said that there were over a million open computer and uh, IT related jobs posted on uh, web-based platforms. So what does that tell us? That there's a skills gap, there's a human capital gap. So again, I, and I was telling this before we started, we, before we hit a record, I, I, I'm coming in, I'm asking questions, not as Daniel Botero today, but I'm asking questions as the students that I work with, the international students that I work with, and the questions that I always get asked, right? So you, you're coming from a way you're saying, hey, there's a, there's a, there's a skills gap. There's a, the, the demand for the jobs, there's not enough supply. But then I work with students that like struggle and they've applied before they even get to me, have applied to, I kid you not, sometimes thousands of jobs. 
and still can't get rejection, like can't get a job. And they're international students. And I feel like the biggest thing that I notice is when they're applying for jobs and that question comes, well, you now or in the future require sponsorship, mm -hmm. right? And they have to put yes, that the applicant tracking system just necessarily disqualifies them. Maybe because it's one of those one 33% of companies that are not hiring, mm -hmm. but even companies that do sponsor, it seems to me that that question disqualifies them a lot. Like mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would say so. And I would say that the applicant tracking systems are definitely excluding those, those resumes, those candidate submissions on, on open jobs. Right. Uh, I, I think what, what we see now and, and what's going to continue is the same game. Um, you look at what it takes to get an interview for anybody looking for a job, right? Not just an international student that's recently graduated, but somebody who maybe has 10 years of experience um, and is in a position where, you know, they've worked for the same employer for quite a while and now they find themselves looking for a new job. Uh, I think that the way that automation has, has moved in the talent acquisition space um, has really kind of defeated a lot of the really recruitment strategies that you see staffing firms employ, right? Because at the end of the day, staffing firms have a job and that is I've got an order and I've got multiple firms I'm competing against to fill this order. So what do I do? I'm creative in my solutions approach and that I'm going to find the best candidate right? The best presentation, the best skill set, the best pedigree from an education standpoint. And what am I looking at when I am recruiting on a resume for that? Well, if I'm an international student, Daniel, that's a recent graduate, and I am on an EAD OPT that maybe has 12 months, or I am on an EAD OPT that has a STEM extension possibility, I know that I've got 36 months to find one of those employers in that 33% category that understands that I'm on a temporary work visa based on my advanced master's degree here in the US. And I have 36 months to find someone who's willing to sponsor me, put me in that H-1B lottery, right? And that H-1B lottery is, is most of your listeners who are international students have done their research or aware there are 20,000 visas each year annually that are issued to international students that come to the U.S. and obtain a U.S. advanced degree, a master's degree. And if that they find an employer that's willing to sponsor them. And so the, the key requirements then come back to it's a master's degree and three years of experience. So if I'm someone who is an international student and I've graduated internationally and then come to the US and then done my master's program and I haven't worked but for 12 months or 24 months and I have a master's degree, how do I find someone to sponsor me, right? And so that's where a lot of the, the questions start to be created and a lot of the problems are created is in the way that, that the current system is, is set up. And it's set up to, to really put international students into a cycle. And that cycle is OPT into H-1B. And if not, then your options become limited. Your options become, do I return to the home country, um, wherever that is, country of origin? Or do I look at merit-based places like Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the UK now? Uh, Germany's become a very top destination as well. And so what's happening right now, and for your international students that are listening and, and understand this, that are living this right now, it's become more difficult for international students to get into the U.S. 
The demand on H-1B visas has never been higher. Numbers this year say that there were over 300,000 requests electronically for H-1B visas for 85,000 that are going to be issued annually, of which only 20% are given to U.S. advanced degrees. So the, the percentage of being selected and awarded is very minor. As a whole, it's 27%. But then you look at, at advanced U.S. Uh, degree candidate pool, and that's even lower. And so it's very difficult to get. And when you start to look at what is my future, I'm graduating with this degree. I should be able to find a job immediately and an employer that can sponsor me immediately. And that's where the, the, the challenge is right now, Daniel. So how do, how can they overcome that? Is there, what can, how, what can they do to set themselves up for a better chance or increase their odds of, you know, being able to stay here in a long, long term? So I think it's, it's a couple of things. First and foremost, it, it comes back to skill set, right? And when we look at how quickly technology is evolving and we look at, I just go back to the early to middle 2000s when I was recruiting and learning about this C sharp and Java. Well, those languages are still around, but then there's a lot of new ones. And it's not about being language specific, but language agnostic. An ability to either code or understand code for this new tech generation is very important. So to me, having some sort of coding capabilities whatever that is. If we want to talk about data, then it's a SQL understanding. If we want to talk about applications, I think Java script, right? You look at just kind of the foundation of what JavaScript is. Um, and then on the Windows side, of course, you know, the, the, the .NET framework. So coding to me, if you want to have that, that golden ticket, it's in that space. It just is. Coders are always in demand, small shops, medium-sized shops, large shops. And as applications and, and automation continue to evolve, having an ability to, to have an understanding and command of multiple coding languages is gonna what's gonna set you apart. And that's what's gonna have employers, those 33% who are willing to say, this guy is a, a subject matter expert on my application, or this girl has been key in us launching these three apps, and we have got to keep her around. Yeah, but but just because, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm coming here from not an expert point of view, just from some like from get learning from just by reading, right? I have not dealt with this myself, right? But just because they have the skills it doesn't guarantee them to be able to stay here the long term. Like a company still needs to want to sponsor them. And then if Correct. once the company wants to sponsor, then they go into a lottery system. Correct. So if the company is like, Hey, I believe in you. This is the, my company can't run without them. Right. Like yep. a valuable player. Mm -hmm. There's still an element of luck. This is there is. There. Or, or is there a way around that? Yeah, as, as I mentioned, Daniel, I think you, you're you're really hitting it a home run here in the question as, a, as an individual, right? As someone who is living and breathing and working this, I'm you know, putting myself in, in the shoes that you are graduating here or have graduated in the last week, right? Because college graduations are happening right now. And so you nailed it, right? If I'm an OPT EAD that's going into the workforce right now, I know I've got 12 months and then I've got a possibility of another 24 months. What I have to do in that 36 months is find an employer who's willing to put me in that H-1B lottery, 
Okay. And once I go into that lottery last year, it was 30% probability this year, I've heard about 27% probability. So think about that. You've really got a one in what four, uh, you know, chance of being selected. And if you're not selected, what happens? Well, the options then become pretty minimal. The best option that I found and is someone who I partner with on the H1B guy platform. And it's a, it's, a, it's two different companies because they do two different things. And that is a company called Syndesis and a company called Path to Canada. And so if I'm an OPT EAD facing expiration, I'm going to start looking at what's the nearest country that's willing to accept my skills. And that's what really, I love what Syndesis does and how Path to Canada operates. Syndesis actually works with employers to relocate the job to Canada, a total offshore outsourced. Wow, yeah, uh, awesome. Right? Whereas Path to Canada does a global talent stream process where they basically will identify employers in Canada who are looking to hire your skill set. Okay, so two different things. While I love both of those companies and what I do, the fact that these companies exist or everything that's wrong with our immigration, employment-based immigration system in the U.S., yeah. right? Because we're telling you that you can come here, get U.S. educated, spend thousands of dollars, but then you're only welcome here for a certain period of time unless you're lucky enough to be selected in the H-1B lottery. The good news, though, Daniel, is that there has been a lot of discussion around changing the way the H-1B lottery works, making it more of a wage-based selection, which means if I can go out and find an employer who's willing to pay me a really top-notch salary, then it's going to increase my probability of being selected. Makes and that was- for taxes. That's right. And that was reform that I was really in favor of. Uh, the current administration has decided to push that back till the end of the year. So what I believe we're going to see next year is we're going to see um, an electronic uh, selection process that's going to roll out that will be a hybrid type selection. I don't think we're going to continue to see the random based selection process that we've seen over the last few years um, since they went to the electronic system. Um, but what I think will happen is that it will be the highest wages in certain wage levels so that individuals that may be a wage, a wage level one, which is that kind of three years of experience type person is going to have the same chance in their pool as somebody who's at a wage level three or four. Uh, another thing that we've seen is a lot of discussions around increasing the numbers of H-1B visas that are issued annually or changing the way that they're issued and looking at increasing the numbers for advanced master's degrees here in the U in U.S. institutions. So that 20,000 pool, I've heard that there's been there's been discussions around it, whether that happens next year or in the next few years of increasing that allotment so that we're increasing the numbers of H-1Bs for U.S.-based graduates, which will help with some of that probability. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned a lot about masters. So do they need a master's to be able to stay here or can someone with a bachelor's degree in engineering still with a STEM field, but yep. stay here and try to get sponsorship? Correct. They can. Um, you just go into the, a, a different pool. So the way the pool works is if you have a bachelor's degree, okay, even if it's from a U.S. institution, um, you know, you would go into the regular 65,000 pool, whereas the 20,000 are set aside for advanced degrees, meaning a master's degree or higher. Got it. And then also uh, understanding that if you are a non-STEM major, you have 12 mm -hmm. months to get sponsorship. And if mm -hmm. you're a STEM major, then you have 36 months, three years to get sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And yep. if I understand this correctly, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, please do. 
um, you go through the lottery. Let's say you get a company that's willing to sponsor. You go through the lottery. And if let's say I'm a STEM student, right? And I don't get, I don't get through, I don't win the lottery that year. Mm-hmm. Next year, I can do it again for the next two years. Mm-hmm. But it's not that I have a better chance the next year. I have the same amount of chances. I correct. just get to go into the lottery three times, that's right? That's correct. And a lot of things that, pe- uh, one of the things that individuals don't know is that you can have multiple employers submit your name into the lottery. So it can be not just your one employer that does it. You can have multiple employers. And so that's where you see a lot of these subcontracting firms that will submit a lot of different requests for the lottery in hopes of being selected. Uh, You know, I'd advise against doing that, but it, it can feel like it increases your chances. Uh, but I want to make one point, and, and I think you've been hitting on this because the million dollar question is, how do I get a job and how do I find an employer that's yep. willing to sponsor me? And I think it comes down to a service like you have with uh, Mastering College to Career, right? You've got to have a resume that's buttoned up. You've got to go through interview practices to know how to interview because there are many situations where kids are coming out of college and they've never interviewed for a job in their life. It takes practice. It's not something that you can do over and over and over. And um, if you don't do that, then you're, when you do get a chance to interview, you're nervous. And that comes through in the interview because hiring managers, I will tell you, generally in the first five minutes have decided whether they're going to hire you or not. And a lot of times that's the first 30 seconds. Um, But generally as the conversation evolves, it's five minutes. And that's where you have to realize, listen, in five minutes, I've got to tell them why I'm somebody they want to take a, a, a chance on, especially if you're a new graduate, that I'm willing to learn, that I bring this certain set of skills with me. These are some of the things that I've done in the past that have given me the right to, to even have an opportunity to interview with you here today. Um, here's some of the coursework that I did that are examples of that. And I think that you've got to be able to just show that hiring manager now because a lot of interviews are taking place over video conferencing versus in person you've got to make it feel very personal and show them how you're going to do one thing and that's provide value to their organization yeah what what you're saying right there is is so true and obviously i appreciate you saying that here i know like um you didn't have to obviously say that but um it's so important to understand that every company, regardless of its size, when they're hiring someone, they're making an investment, right? If they're using that money, let's say it's $100,000 to hire a developer, a level entry developer, uh, they can't use that money for marketing. They can't use that money for a piece of software. They can't use that money for anything else. And so it's an investment. And so you have to go into an interview showing them why the investment of $100,000 in your salary is going to generate $200,000, $300,000 in revenue or profits for the company. And when you can show them that then you becomes a no brainer. The second thing I want to uh, talk about is in my experience, right? The international students that I've met that come from STEM backgrounds are some of the smartest individuals that I've met. But one thing they struggle with is communicating their value is the interpersonal mm-hmm. skills is the communication skills. And I, I, I meet individuals who are com- brilliant. Like they know they're, uh, they're on top of their class. Like they technically speaking, they're a 10 out of 10. But one thing I've noticed is that visibility is more important than ability. And so you can have the best experience. You can have like know all the coding languages. You can have all the skills in the world. 
But if you do not know how to properly gain visibility on your application, you're going to struggle with getting that chance, right? And if all you're doing is applying online and hoping to get a job, it's essentially the same thing as me saying, hey, Robert, my plan to get rich is by playing the lottery, like the, the lotto, mm-hmm. like the regular lotto, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you need to really focus on building those relationships, connected with hiring managers, gain visibility to you, because ultimately to sponsor you, they have to ex- explain why you're invaluable and why mm-hmm. they couldn't just hire an American citizen to do your job. And right. And That's so right. you have to build those relationships so that those people can go to bat for you. Um, and I know that for some companies, it's a lot easier than others. Like they, it's very systematic. They know exactly. And they can explain it. They work They have some great lawyers. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's really important to understand that your skills are really important and your skills are going to, at the end of the day, are going to what you do with the job. But you mm-hmm. need to be able to communicate your value. You need to be able to interview well. You need to be able to network and build those relationships to get your application some visibility. But what are your thoughts on that? And like, what have you seen? So I'm going to take off the H1B guy hat and put on my recruiter hat. And this isn't just for technology, STEM, which is primarily what I talk about a good bit. But this is for any international student who's graduating from a U.S. institute. Have your resume and your LinkedIn profile match. Make sure you have a LinkedIn profile. So those are the two things. The resume and your LinkedIn profile need to match and you need to have a LinkedIn profile because I can tell you as a hiring manager or as a recruiter, when I get a resume, the first thing that I do is look in LinkedIn to see if I can find you. And if you're not there, I question you. And if your resume doesn't match what's on your LinkedIn profile, I'm going to question you. So go ahead and make sure that you take care of that. If you have a website or a portfolio, you need to make sure that that is kept up to date and current because somebody somewhere in some applicant tracking system may find your resume from two years ago, hit that link and see something that you've been doing recently that makes you even more relevant, makes you even more in demand. And if you do those two things, which are maintain your resume, make sure that it mirrors your LinkedIn profile, have a LinkedIn profile, and then keep your portfolio, your website, or your socials up to date so that people can find and and see things that you've been doing recently, even if it's from a few years ago, that's going to go a long way for you and building your career. Yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm a huge believer. I actually think your, uh, your, your LinkedIn profile will become more important than your resume as time goes on, because it just becomes a more unbiased, um, easier to read, easier to scan kind of uh, one, one place has everything that you need. But well, and like um, guys like you and I that have 4,000 plus connections, have people that have been following us. I go back to my LinkedIn profile, which I created in 2004 or five and where it is now. And there have been people that can justify my experience over my career consistently. Right. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, look, I I have a a 34 page PDF document that walks you step-by-step on how to make the perfect LinkedIn um, account and teaches you not only how to create your profile, but how to create your first five posts, as well as how to find decision makers and what to say to them. So text me uh, at my cell at 321-221-5240. And I can text you back this PDF document. My number again is 321-221-5240. And I can send you that document. Uh, one, one of the last questions I got for you, Robert. So I've been, um, 
working with a lot, this is this is really crazy to me. And I don't know what you've seen when, when it comes to this. Uh, a lot of the students that I've, a lot of international students that I work with, I, I, I teach them how to create content on LinkedIn. And so there, some of their LinkedIn has gone viral. And because of that, they're getting a lot of agencies are finding like a, a recruiters from agency recruiters are finding them and just saying, hey, based on your profile, I can guarantee you two to three interviews a week. Um, and they're like, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Um, but would you recommend an international student starting off doing contract work or would you recommend them trying to focus on getting a full-time job? So this is the $100 million question, Daniel. First and foremost, I'm always going to go to a perm employer who understands and is willing to sponsor you. And that, that is discussed at the front end of the interview. That listen, I'm on an OPT EAD. I have employment authorization for the next 36 months, yep. 10 months, 14 months, what however many months you have remaining on, whichever um, your your OPT has, right? Um, so I'm going to go there and make sure that that conversation happens on the front end, that they understand my work authorization and that I will require sponsorship in order to continue perm employment on their work site. Yep. Past that, we've got to work. And I will tell you that um, when we talk about third party um, staffing firms and subcontracting sub vendor firms that are out there, um, there are as for as many bad ones, there are really good ones. And I've had the opportunity to befriend and work with some really good ones that really take care of their people. And the great thing about working for a third party sub vendor like that is that you're going to get an opportunity to get exposure into some very large enterprise companies that you may not otherwise get an opportunity to step foot in. And so it's really a matter of your personality and what you're willing to, to do. Because as a consultant, you've got to understand that nothing is perm, that everything is six months, 12 months, 18 months, six months, 12 months, 18 months. And you've got to be willing to roll with that. But even in perm employers, you know, as we've seen over the last year, a lot of companies and organizations are figuring out um, where do they move people and, and where don't they? There's a few statistics, though, that I want to I want to leave you with, Daniel, that I think you, your your listeners would find very interesting. And you talked about communication skills and STEM. But for every one H-1B employee that employers hire, it creates two American jobs. Whatever job that may be, think about that. For every one H-1B employee employers hire, it creates two American jobs. The other scary statistic about H-1B jobs, and we've talked about this, um, and this goes back to your question about around the lottery, and that is for every 10 unfilled H-1B jobs, three of those are offshored, and the other seven, the workload is evenly distributed to other employees. Wow. Let, let, let me slow down this statistic because like, I've never heard of those, but it makes sense. And I just want to, I would, I just want to rationalize that out loud. Right. The reason why every hire creates, you said two jobs. Correct. Is that because every, for every one H1B employee, it creates two American jobs. Now what those jobs are, it's a variety of things, right? But is that just because they're making so much money that they're now paying taxes they're going to the groceries or going to restaurants, they're 
just correct. It's all of that. It's and it's the innovation within the company too, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're innovating a particular product, a portfolio line, they're creating jobs around that product and portfolio right. line. So, like, if you look at those numbers, which makes so much sense, why? Like, this is why, and I don't want to get into politics because this is not a, a, a. Why wouldn't we want to accept every student that graduates from a, uh, American university and let them stay here and work? Why, like, have them educated here and then send them off to the like every back home or or Canada who are like would gladly take them or Australia who gladly takes them? Like, um, I, I guess this is another discussion for another podcast, but I think that's something to that yeah. think about. I, I no, um, that's a great question, and I think it's something you're hearing this growing sentiment around is U.S. educated immigrants versus immigrants who are high skilled who aren't u.s educated what's the fine line between those two and honestly daniel that's something we could talk about for 20 minutes because it does get very political there's a lot of different um opinions out there but but i'll i'll leave it with this and that is to say um if we continue to restrict high skilled immigrants specifically employment-based immigrants in the u.s whether they are u.s educated which is really the the listeners of your show here or not um eventually they're going to go somewhere else and the future of the u.s will be one that loses the war on human capital and while i am a proponent of having plan b's in place our great country daniel is still the number one destination country in the world and i hope that by us talking about this and bringing awareness to it and that's one of the things i try to do on the h1b guy youtube channel and on the h1b guy.com is share my opinions and bridge the gap between the extreme right and left and come at it from an employer's perspective. I love it. So just to, to recap all this, uh, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding this because this is a really complex thing. I'm an international student, right? I graduated last week, right? Um, I filed for OPT. I have 90 days to get a job. My clock literally starts ticking from the time I get that, 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 that documentation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am a STEM student, so that allows me to uh, get have three years to get a company to sponsor me, right? So my best case scenario is to go directly for a company that's willing to sponsor me. I have mm-hmm. three shots at the lottery, um, and hopefully one of those three years, I'm able to get the lottery. Now, if I can't get a job directly with a company that's willing to sponsor me, then my best bet might be to just start in a contract role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe that contract role is three months. Maybe I can convert that into a full time or I can use that time to start looking for a company that is willing to sponsor me. Um, I know we didn't talk about this, but there are some loopholes, essentially loopholes around mm-hmm. the uh, being not being able to have to go through the through this, uh, the lottery. And that is if you work for nonprofits or Correct. government entities. Is there mm-hmm. any other things that I just missed? You know, I know this is really big picture. And if they want more information, they just need to follow you. That's it. But yeah, no, you, you nailed it. So, um, you know, exempt versus non-exempt. Uh, you're talking about, um, I always go back to it's, it's research institutions, universities, medical centers, right? That are, that are nonprofit organizations. Um, they can request H-1Bs that aren't uh, penalized, accounted against the cap that 85,000 and it's under the same sort of limit. So an H1B visa in and of itself is valid for up to six years. And in order to extend that time, whether you're exempt or non-exempt requires employment-based green card sponsorship. And it's one of the things on the channel I talk about a lot is the green card backlog. And that's, (laughs) we could go on for hours about that, but 
you, the question I think comes back to what are, what are my chances of staying, right? What, why do I want to come here? Why do I want to continue to work? Do I take a 90 day contract, get my foot in the door? If that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do. Is it the best scenario? No. But what I am doing is I'm not going to be discouraged and, and think that because I've only submitted my resume 20 times, I'm going to get five interviews. It's not the way the numbers are and the way the automated ATS has worked. You've got to keep going and stay with it and bear the course. And I know that you map that out really well for them, Daniel. Um, and I can tell you, tell any of your listeners out there that, um, intentional behavior will create the result that you want. Yeah. And that's just, that's it. You have to continue to do the same thing. Um, submit resumes, good cover letters, why you're a good fit over and over and over to work your way through these systems to finally get to the TA or the recruiter who knows the job, who looks at your resume and says, I think we should talk to you further about this. Yeah. I, I think what I tell my students, because they're like, I'm going to apply to every single job that I meet the minimum qualifications for. And I say, wait, 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 slow down for a second. Number one thing is one, do they sponsor, right? Go to myvisajobs.com. Have they sponsored in the past? If not, mm -hmm. stop wasting your time because if only 33% of companies will sponsor and you're applying to just random then that means 66% of the companies you're applying for don't even sponsor. So you just mm -hmm. wasted 66% of your time. Mm -hmm. Second thing is just because they sponsor doesn't mean they sponsor for the role that you're applying for. Correct. Right? So you need to look into that, right? Um, so actually, I take it back. Number one, are they hiring? Number two, are they, do they sponsor? Number three, do they sponsor for your role? So yep. look, uh, we can talk about this for hours. And this is exactly what you do talk about for That's hours right. on a weekly basis. So Robert, like, tell us a little bit more about what you do. Uh, what are the, some of the services that you provide? Sure. How can someone get a hold of you? Because yep. I'm telling you, if I'm an international student, I hear this conversation. And if it, if you didn't know this before, it should be very eye-opening. And you need someone like Robert in your corner to be informed about this subject. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. I really appreciate it. So, you know, what I, what I do is I help employers and businesses solve complex work authorization issues and the recruitment process. Um, and I also bring awareness to employment-based immigration benefits, including the H-1B, OPT, EADs, TNs, E3s, uh, cover literally all different types of, of work authorization statuses that are out there, primarily STEM, some med, a lot of research, and, and some exempt. Um, so I'm at the h1bguy.com. Uh, you can follow me on uh, the H1B Guy channel on YouTube, uh, Twitter, really the H1B Guy across all of, of the socials. Um, if someone needs my assistance, I love to help people solve their problems when it comes to this, because really what I do is I give non-legal opinions um, based on if I was their employer, what would I advise them to do? Because I need them in that seat. So that's the approach that I take. And it, it's really kind of a non-biased opinion that I provide because ultimately I want to see cases get approved and, and the workforce grow. Um, and so, you know, I just appreciate the opportunity to come on here, share my story, talk with you more about the H-1B visa. Um, if and when you think uh, it may be relevant and things change, I'd, I'd love and be willing to come back on. I love it. No, I actually think, um, and we'll talk this off base, maybe doing a live, like, a live uh, LinkedIn live or live workshop and we'll just invite uh, any international students in my community I have over 20,000 uh, followers on LinkedIn and just mm -hmm. let them do an open Q&A and I think that'll be really helpful. So, yeah, that'd be awesome. Let Robert, me know. You are awesome. This has been like extremely informative. I think um, it's going to be very eye opening and very helpful for many, many students. So uh, 
and very gratitude. I'm very grateful yeah. to have you here. Well, uh, thank for, you so much. And if there's anything I can do to help any of your students, please don't hesitate and just uh, with you, nothing but uh, success and love, Daniel. Thanks, man. Same thing, Robert. Talk to you soon. Thanks right. for everybody. Catch you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to the Mastering College to Career podcast. We hope that you enjoyed the show. In an age of short attention spans, this speaks volumes about you. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think that the podcast deserves. Until next time, catch you guys on the next episode.